0: Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. This morning we're going to read from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, 25 to 49. Verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind." You, O oh king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet Partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue... Became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery." In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery then the king promoted Daniel gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of babylon daniel made request of the king and he appointed shadrach meshach and abednego over the administration of the province of babylon while daniel was at the king's court let's pray Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and revealed your mind to us and that you have given us light in darkness. And we pray that this morning as we turn our attention now to your word, we pray, God, that you would enable us to understand, you would help us to understand this dream that you gave to Nebuchadnezzar so long ago and yet we still have record of for our instruction and our good. And we pray, Lord, that this enlightenment would cause us to glorify and praise you for your awesome might and your awesome power and your awesome grace and your awesome goodness. Please bless our time in your word this morning and be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning's sermon title is... The fundamental prophecy. The fundamental prophecy. And I'd like to make this point clear from the beginning. And this is a point that is acknowledged by most scholars, the majority, and I'll let one scholar speak for the rest. Nathaniel West, a scholar in the 19th century, wrote this, about this dream. Quote, This dream... And its interpretation is the fundamental prophecy of all the prophecies in the book of Daniel. All else is supplementary to this. That's a very important point that we need to keep in mind as we go on through the book of Daniel. Bear in mind the relationship between this prophecy in Daniel 2 to the other prophecies that we'll encounter as we go on in the book of Daniel The others are supplementary to this fundamental, basic, or foundational prophecy. All the prophecies in Daniel deal with that time that leads up to and consummates in the glorious kingdom of God. Right? If you're familiar with the other prophecies we're going to encounter, they all end in the glorious establishment of the kingdom of God. So let's keep that in mind. And before we look at the dream and its interpretation, let's orient ourselves with the setting and the background of this dream. And we're going to do those two things this morning. We're going to look at the background here, and then we're going to look at the dream itself and its interpretation. So first, the background. If you remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar was having nightmares, right? Nebuchadnezzar was having dreams. And these dreams were not like typical dreams that we often have. Um, how many of you have lots of dreams and you know they're not from God, right? <laughs> I had a dream this last night, actually. I was on an amateur basketball team playing against a police team. <laughs> I had a breakaway and I had a dunk and I missed it. <laughs> I kid you not. I'm sure that wasn't from God. <laughs> okay? And as, I, as I, we mentioned last week, there's a lot of dreams that there's a lot of uh, psychologists who have studied dreams and there's reasons why we have dreams. But the Bible tells us that God can speak to us in dreams as well. And we're not to think that every dream comes from God, but that dreams can come from God. And when they do, you know. And And Nebuchadnezzar was convinced this dream was from the gods. He didn't know Yahweh. But he was a devout believer in the gods. And because he was convinced that the dream was from the gods, And because it was a nightmare and a scary dream, and he had a feeling, a pretty good feeling, that it was about him. And it was about his kingdom and the fate of his kingdom. He was wanting to know for certain what the dream was about. And he didn't want any uh, wishy-washy answer from his magicians. He didn't want his magicians to give him some answer that he wasn't absolutely certain was was in fact what the gods were were attempting to say to him. And so in order for him to be absolutely certain that he knows what the dream is about, Nebuchadnezzar uh, tests his magicians, right? And he brings them in and he says, all right, I had a dream and I want you to tell me the interpretation of it, but I also want you to tell me what the dream is. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is, right? I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed. You have to tell me what I dreamed and tell me the interpretation so that I know When you tell me the interpretation, it's the right interpretation. That was Nebuchadnezzar's test. As we saw last week, all the magicians and conjurers and priests and officials in his kingdom couldn't pass that test, right? They despaired. They didn't have an answer to this problem. There was nothing that they could do. This was a contest between the true God and... And the false gods that don't really exist. And as I mentioned last week, uh, there's a there's deep parallels here with the book of Daniel and the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, God is challenging the other gods and saying, "If you are really gods, then te- then do something, right? If you're gods, tell us something that we as humans couldn't know, and then we'll know that you, in fact, are gods and not just uh, fictions." And The book of Isaiah is God challenging the other gods and God declaring he is the only God of heaven and earth. There is no other gods. That God knows the dark things. God knows the hidden things. God reveals to man things that they don't know. He proves that he is God. And this is exactly what we find in the earlier part of this chapter and many more times throughout this book. A contest between God and gods. And the gods always prove to be nothing. And God always proves himself to be there and that he cares about man. So when Daniel prays to God, Daniel doesn't despair, right? Daniel hears this test. It's humanly impossible. And Daniel knows that no human can know this. But Daniel doesn't despair like the other magicians who don't know the true God. He prays and God answers him. And Daniel gives glory to God in this prayer right before the the reading that we had this morning. Now look at verse 24 and 25 this is where we left off last week, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. And in verse 25, Ariok brings Daniel into the king's presence and says this, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. An unlikely candidate, Right? I have found someone who can interpret, who can tell you your dream and interpret it. It's a captive from Judah. Wait, you mean the nation that we conquered? Yeah. The the God that we conquered? That guy? Yeah. An unlikely candidate because Daniel's God, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, was a defeated God. And his gods were superior, and yet the Babylonian gods couldn't answer this test. And so... He's an unlikely candidate. In verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar is a little incredulous, a little, he's intrigued, obviously, that this man can claim to tell his dream. And he asks him in verse 26, calling him by his heathen name that he's been given, Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me both the dream and its interpretation? In verse 27, Notice that Daniel answers the king in the exact same way that the magicians answer the king. At least he starts his answer in the same way. Compare verse 27 with verse 10. So Daniel says in verse 27, he answers and says, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king, period. And look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered and said to the king, There is not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king. So they both say the same thing to the king, but the difference is what comes next, right? With the magicians, there is no however. There's nothing else that can be said, right? It's not humanly possible, period. That's it. Can't be done. And because it's not humanly possible, it can't be done, because the only things that can be done are what's humanly possible. And Daniel, who's not by constitution or birth, anything special. He's not more special than these magicians uh, because he's got some special gene inside him. The only difference is that Daniel knows Yahweh. Daniel knows God. Daniel knows the scriptures and he has faith in God. And so Daniel has a however because the God of Israel has proven himself again and again and again in Israel's story, in Israel's history, to be the God who's there to be the God who acts, to be the God who delivers, to be the God who promises and comes through with his promises, to be a God that you can turn to and that can do humanly impossible things, right? Here's a big example. They come to the Red Sea. Now, by human resources, Israel's dead, right? They're against the waters. They've got nowhere to go. And the might of the Egyptian army is closing in on them fast. They've got no weapons. They've got women and children. Here's a trained army There's nothing they can do. And at that point, they're saying, we're dead. Why'd you bring us out here to die? Right? See, they don't know know Yahweh yet. They don't know him. But Moses says, relax. Right? However, there is a God in heaven who can deliver us from this situation. And lo and behold, God does what is humanly impossible. He opens up the waters and delivers them. Closes the waters upon the army. And in a matter of How many hours the Israelites are on the other side, completely safe, and there's not a trace of the Egyptian army. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus applies this theme to salvation, doesn't he? And Jesus, in referring to salvation, when he's talking with the disciples about what is required for a man to be saved, and what is required for a man to be saved is absolute perfection absolute perfect righteousness, with no flaw, no sin, total blamelessness, the disciples say, who then can be saved? If that's what God requires, then no one can be saved. And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So there's this same theme when it comes to our salvation, right? If you're saved, it's because God has done something that is humanly impossible that you could not do. He has made you righteous through the blood of his son, through this, his son's death on the cross. He has made you righteous. That is something you could not do uh, in your works and in your effort. So the difference is he knows God and he believes. That's the difference between Daniel and the magicians. Uh, one scholar, John Golden Gay, says this about uh, verse 28 where Daniel addresses Nebuchadnezzar. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries he says this, Golden Gay says, The key assertion of the book is not that there is a God in heaven. Everyone believed as much. It is that contrary to the despairing assumptions of the sages, this God reveals secrets. The sages were right that a divine revelation would be needed to provide what the king asked for and wrong to assume that it was impossible. So, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar believed that there was a... that. There was a divinity out there. And Daniel's telling, Yes, there is, and he reveals, and you can turn to him, and he delivers, and he speaks, and he acts, and he cares, and we can pray to him, and he will answer us. And he has answered us. Daniel is showing Nebuchadnezzar who God really is. Now, notice in verse 28 what Daniel says about this dream. This is the third indicator uh, about, uh, that, that shows us what the dream is about before we've even heard the dream. We've already had three indicators about what this dream is about. In the first verse, we, re- we learned it was scary. Nebuchadnezzar's troubled by this dream. In verse 21 in Daniel's prayer, we learned that this dream has something to do with God changing the times and the seasons and establishing kings and taking down kings in Daniel's prayer in verse 21. That's the second indicator of what the dream is before we've heard the dream. And then this is the third indicator of what the dream is before we've heard the dream. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, God has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. So before we've heard the dream, we've now been told that this dream of yours, Nebuchadnezzar, is about what's going to take place in the latter days. The author's building a lot of suspense. He makes you really want to hear the dream. He's kind of wetting your appetites. This, it's that, and the other. It'll tell me what it is. Right? What does the latter days mean? This phrase. The latter days. Does it mean the future time in general? Is Daniel just telling Nebuchadnezzar, God has given you a dream that, that tells you what's going to happen in the future. Now the future could be immediately after you, but not the, you know, long time future, not the very end of the days, just the future in general? Or does it mean the final time? Is he saying God has revealed to you what's going to take place, not just in the general future, but at the very end? Well, the Aramaic here, because this is written in Aramaic, literally means in the latter part of the days. God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what's going to take place in the latter part of the day. So if you think of a day or days, we're talking about a period of time. God has shown Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen at the end of that period of time. This phrase is actually used 14 times in the Old Testament. 14 times from Genesis all the way through the prophets. And what's interesting is if you go through those different 14 times, you'll notice that this phrase always refers to a period of time that consummates in the establishment of the kingdom of God and the reign of the Messiah. Whenever the latter days is mentioned, we're talking about a period of time that ends with the setting up of the kingdom of God. It's used one other time in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 14, the angel Uh, says to Daniel, God is revealing to you what's going to happen in the latter days. And, of course, the dream that the angel is speaking of, is, or the vision, is 11 and 12, chapter 11 and 12, which, once again, ends and consummates in the establishment of the messianic kingdom. Robert Culver writes this about the phrase, the latter days in the prophetical literature of the Old Testament refers to the future of God's dealings with mankind has to be consummated and concluded historically in the times of the Messiah. An examination shows that while many events previous to eschatological times are within the scope of the prophecies limited by the expression latter days, in not one of them is the conclusion of all human history in the consummating events of connected with the future establishment of the kingdom on earth Is it ever out of sight? Is that establishment of the kingdom ever out of sight in none of them? So Culver concludes, eschatological prediction is to be expected in this prophecy. Now God is not just revealing then to Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen to his empire, what's going to happen to the Babylonian empire, but what's going to happen to all human rule and what the final end of the days will be. It will be the establishment of the rule of God. Stephen Miller writes, The account of the four human kingdoms may be regarded as a prelude to the climax of history, the kingdom of God ruled by the Messiah. So this is an extremely encouraging dream for Israel because Israel is at this time conquered. They're defeated. Jerusalem's in ruins. The temple's destroyed. And yet this dream assures the heathens and the Jews, that no matter who's conquering who, no matter if Israel's conquered or not, human kingdoms will come to an end, uh, human rule, and God's kingdom will be established. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel did not mean that God was not in control, right? That's the very important point we looked at in chapter 1. God gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, it's part of God's plan. And at last, God's kingdom will prevail. So let's just settle that in our hearts that no matter what happens in this earth, no matter who reigns, no matter what president is elected next in America, no matter what kingdom rises and what kingdom falls, the end here, God has revealed, in the latter days, will be his kingdom established on this earth and that's encouraging for those who know God amen I know that's encouraging to me Daniel says at the end of verse 28 this is what your dream is about this is the point of your dream verse 30 confirms our view that God gives the wise their wisdom Daniel makes it very clear that the reason why I know your dream and the reason why I know its interpretation isn't because I'm special or different than anyone else. It's simply because God has revealed it to me so that I can reveal it to you. I'm not different. It sounds like just like Paul in the New Testament when he says, Who makes anyone to differ, right? This is the remedy against pride. This is the remedy against bragging against other people, is knowing that whatever you have is a gift from God. If you have any wisdom and understanding, it comes from God and God gave it to Daniel because he wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand he wants all human kings to understand God wants all of us to understand and this was written down for, for us all to see and know this is not just for Nebuchadnezzar if you walk out of here this morning not understanding this you've missed the point of the dream that God is in charge and his rule is coming Wallace Emerson writes Daniel's answer to the king, the revelation of the dream and its interpretation, is more than just the satisfaction of the royal demand. This story is not just about Nebuchadnezzar wants to know the dream and Daniel gave it. It is the first of a series of revelations to the heathen world from God. Each of these revelations is calculated to impress each empire with the omnipotence, omniscience, and the concern of the one true God to civilization, civilizations unaware of him. This is the beginning of God making himself known to the heathen world and saying, you need to pay attention here, you're not really in charge at all. If you think that you are, you're going contrary to the purposes of God. And, and you know how many kingdoms today, how many republics, how many nations acknowledge that God is in control today? Right? How many rulers say, you know, I've been elected, but I know God is ultimately in control, and this is all just temporary, right? Not many. They haven't listened, but yet here's the book of Daniel for all eyes to see, for everyone to turn and listen. Will they learn the lesson or not? So this is the background of the dream. And now we're going to look at the dream itself and his interpretation, second thing this morning. I like to mention that this dream is the first in the Bible, the first text in the Bible that is in that is in what is called apocalyptic genre. You notice apocalyptic genre in the Bible: um, Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation. They 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 have this genre that's different than the narrative stories like in Genesis or Exodus or even the prophets who speak in in poetry. Uh, The apocalyptic genre is the weird visions and dreams with animals and strange-looking animals with strange features that do strange things, right? This is what is called apocalyptic genre or the apocalyptic style. And God is the one who gave this style. And I'd just like to point out a few things about it, make sure that you understand what is this style about first of all it's not poetic the apocalyptic genre is not poetry there's nothing poetic in this it's all prose and it's not poetic in the sense that when the apocalyptic genre says something we're just supposed to say that's just a nice poetic way of speaking about some phenomenon it's not poetry it's symbolic that the apocalyptic genre speaks of concrete things in a symbolic way, concrete things meaning real phenomena in the world, real things in the world, kingdoms, empires, people, real things that they do, battles, um, uh, the falling of nations, things that actually happen concretely in the world are depicted symbolically in the apocalyptic genre. So, what details the apocalyptic genre gives us, we're to look for some counterpart in the concrete reality of the world in a non-poetic way. That's what the apocalyptic genre, uh, that's how it works. Another thing about the apocalyptic genre, the last thing I'll mention, is it's never contingent. That means it's never up in the air, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, if things are different. The, whatever the God reveals in a vision or a dream that's like this, it's going to happen. This is what God has determined it's not contingent. It can't be changed. So it's important to keep this in mind as we look at the, this fundamental prophecy. Now let's look at verse 31. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. There was a single great statue. Whatever the divisions of the statue may be, gold, gold, representing something, silver representing something, bronze representing something, whatever, the divi- whatever we can say about those divisions, it is absolutely essential that we keep in mind that this statue is really one thing. Okay? We're not talking about a bunch of different things. We're talking about one thing. It's one single statue and it remains a single statue all the way to the end. So keep that in mind. We're dealing with one thing. There's divisions in that one thing. This statue, of course, was uh, powerful to behold, impressive, sp- uh, splendid. And in verse 32 and 33, we see there, there's divisions in this statue. There was a head of gold. There was breast and arms of silver. Just try to picture this in your head. There was its belly and thighs of bronze. It had legs of iron. And it had feet of part iron and part clay. The, the thighs probably are like short shorts. Imagine that's what it's like. And then below that would be the legs of iron, and then the feet would be uh, iron and clay. This is the division of, the statue, statue of this one statue, and I want you to notice that there's five divisions, not just four. There's five things to notice. There's gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron and clay. Those are five things to keep in mind. Verse 34, you continue to look at the statue and all of a sudden a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it crushed them. The phrase without hands is an idiom. It's a common idiom in, in the Hebrew Aramaic language and what the phrase without hands indicates is is divine action without the instrumentality of man. Without hands means God does something. It's not the work of man. It's not God using man. It's something God does. That's what it means when it says without hands. And you can find it throughout the Bible, actually. The Bible says we're saved without hands. Isn't that awesome? We are saved without hands. Colossians chapter 2. It's a divine work. Without the human instrumentality, God doesn't use us to save us. God saves us himself. It's a divine act. Keep that in mind. Uh, there's some commentators or preachers speak of the stone rolling, but there's nothing in this text about a rolling stone. All we know is there's a stone cut without hands and it smashes the statue in a precise place. The, the precise place where the stone hits the statue is important. Anytime apocalyptic genre gives us a detail, we're supposed to know that it's important. And we're not supposed to press details outside of uh, what, the, what details are given. So we're, whatever the details that are given to us, that's important, but we're not supposed to press anything else that's not mentioned. So where the stone hits the statue uh, is important. And where does the stone hit the statue? In the head? In the arms, in the belly, in the legs. Where does the stone hit the statue? In the feet. Keep that in mind. It's very important. And what happens when the stone hits the feet? Yes, look at verse uh, 35. It says, The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed, all at the same time, Echad in the Aramaic, all at the same time. And they become like chaff. I probably, maybe it would be better to say they became powder, and the wind blew the powder away. And how much trace is left of the statue? None. So after the stone hits the statue, the whole statue becomes powder, all of the powder gets blown away, and there is nothing left of this statue to be found. It is gone. And this stone that hits the statue, that now is the only thing that remains, becomes a great mountain and it fills the earth. It's kind of it's really would have been a very shocking and impressive dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And it would be obvious why he would be bothered by it. He probably thought of himself as the statue and this thing striking it, you know, it scared him. Who knows that the statue maybe looked like him or it looked like someone like something he may have been familiar with. We don't know. I'd like to also point out that there's a chiastic structure here. If you know what a chiasm is in Hebrew, um, or actually in many languages, in many ancient works, there's a structure where the writer will organize his thoughts in a pattern like where it starts with the first thing, A, then it goes to B, And then it could go on as many as you want, C, D. But then it will always come back to A in that order. So it would be A, B, B, A, A, B, C, C, B, A, like that. That's a chiastic structure. And here we have a chiastic structure in this. You've got the impressive statue. That's where it starts. You've got the impressive statue. Then it says there's gold. Then it says there's silver. Then it says there's bronze. Then it says that there's the iron and the clay, iron and then clay and iron feet, And then when the stone hits the feet, it says it hits the clay and iron feet. Then notice in verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed. So it reverses the order. It goes backwards. And then what happens to the statue? It's gone. So there's the chiastic order. The statue is impressive. The statue is gone. There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze, there's iron. Then it goes backwards until it's gone. And when there's a chiastic structure, it's the middle point that's the focus. So what's the focus then? Is the feet the focus is the iron and the feet that is the focus where the where the stone strikes the statue that's the focus of the dream and its interpretation and also of the later visions as we shall see the supplementary visions also focus here well in verse 36 Daniel says that's your dream can you imagine how amazed Nebuchadnezzar would be at this point? <laughs> He'd be filled with wonder. Oh my, this man just said my dream. This is what it was. And in, ter- in terms of commentary and scholarship, so far so good, there's no controversy here. That's what the, the dream is. But when we get to the interpretation, we start getting into some controversy. Now look at verse 37 and 38. Just as Nebuchadnezzar feared it was concerning him. Right? So Daniel now addresses Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand. He has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So, it was concerning him. God is not only the God who reveals what the dream is, But the one who is revealing this dream and its interpretation to you is also the one who has set you up, Nebuchadnezzar. The God who is speaking to you right now is the very God who's given you your reign. And you would not have a kingdom, you would not have power, you would not have glory or might if it wasn't for God. You wouldn't even have your senses if it wasn't for God, and you'll find that out later. You would be like an animal eating grass if it wasn't for God. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the king of kings. This is an important phrase in Daniel and an important phrase in the Bible, isn't it? The king of kings because as we get to the book of Revelation, who is called the king of kings? Christ Jesus. Now verse 38 helps us understand king of kings. Basically, wherever the sons of men dwell and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hands. The king of kings is the one who rules over all. Even kings. The king of kings is the one who rules over other nations. Who is the supreme sovereign in the earth. The king of kings. Turn with me to Jeremiah 27, but keep your finger in Daniel here. Just go back uh, two books, three books actually. Lamentations is small though. Jeremiah 27. And we'll find Jeremiah saying the very same thing here. Of course, Jeremiah is writing this before Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Jeremiah 27, verse 1. Jeremiah prophesies to the king of Jerusalem and to the other kings around Jerusalem, around Israel. Verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes, And put them on your neck, and send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to king Zedekiah, king of Judah. Command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm and I will give it to the one who, is, who I please. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Not that Nebuchadnezzar knows God, not that Nebuchadnezzar is good, but he's still serving God in his ignorance. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. And look, notice verse 7 all the nations shall serve him. That's king of kings. And his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. See, God sets the bounds. God gives power into Nebuchadnezzar's hands and his son and his grandson. God gives it to Babylon and he says, until his time comes, then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. So let's go back to Daniel 2. So here Daniel is saying the same thing. God has given this power into your hands. We might ask the question, how can we say that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over all the earth, ruled over all nations, when clearly Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was rather small? He didn't rule over the Greeks. He didn't rule over the Indians. Um, how is it that he's ruling over all? And I think the comment by the scholar uh, Samuel Tregelis is helpful here. He was not limited as to the power which he might obtain in whatever direction he may turn himself as conqueror. The only earthly bound to his empire was his own ambition. Basically, God had given uh, all the nations in Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and if Nebuchadnezzar had turned any which way he wanted, he would have conquered. Until, of course, God said, Your time's up. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. There is no controversy there among scholars. His empire and his person really are the same thing, as uh, scholars will agree. When we talk about the head of gold, we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar's reign, or Babylon's reign. Verse 39. The silver and the bronze. Now, you are the head of gold, but after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you then another kingdom A third kingdom of bronze which will rule over the earth. So here we learn that the bronze, the silver and the bronze are two more kingdoms. So now we're getting the idea that this statue and its divisions represent different rules, different reigns. The Aramaic word is malhu. It means a reign. It might even be better translated reign than kingdom. So there will be a kingdom after you and one after that one. And its inferiority is symbolized by the different kind of metal. Your are gold, the next one is silver, the next one is bronze, so there's an uh, ongoing inferiority that happens. And these likewise rule, it says in verse 39, over all the earth. These likewise are given power by God to reign in whatever dire- direction they would turn. Now, H.K. Laurondel says this, I think it's helpful, prophecy is best interpreted by its fulfillment. Prophecy is best interpreted by its fulfillment. Because at that point, Daniel says, there's going to be another kingdom after you. What kingdom is that going to be? I don't know. And there's going to be another kingdom after that. What kingdom is that going to be? I don't know. But now, when we look back, we can ask historically, what kingdom came after the Babylonians? And there uh, is basically... um, basically unanimous agreement that the kingdom that came after the Babylonians was the joint kingdom of Media and Persia. The joint kingdom of Media and Persia. And what was the kingdom that came after the Media-Persian empire? Who remembers? Greece. If anything, the Bible tells us that we should be students of history as well. So... Therefore, most scholars, and I myself agree, and this is interesting, most scholars of all ages, Jewish and Christian scholars of all ages, right back uh, 2,000 years ago up till today, all agree that the gold represents Babylon's kingdom, the silver represents the joint media Persian kingdom, and the, the bronze represents the Greek kingdom. And what's interesting is later in the supplementary visions we're going to get, we're going to see this confirmed again where these empires are explicitly named. They're mentioned by name. But the question here is, how is it that these two kingdoms are inferior to the Babylonian kingdom? How is it that they're inferior? Because anyone who's familiar with history would know that there's, this is rather strange to say they're inferior, There are certainly, none of these two kingdoms were inferior in size. If you just look at maps on Google, you're going to see that the media Persian empire was far greater than the Babylonian kingdom. The the Greek empire was far greater than the Babylonian kingdom. So they're certainly not inferior in size, nor are they inferior in longevity. The Babylonian empire is the one that reigned the shortest of of these two. So these other two beat them in size, they beat them in longevity. You can't say that the Babylonians were stronger militarily. The other two kingdoms had incredible strength militarily. That's how they were able to conquer so much and go so far. Nor can you say that the other two kingdoms were inferior morally. All three of those kingdoms are pagan kingdoms. None of them know God. All of them do disgusting things, the Bible says. So you can't say that it's inferior morally. So how then is it inferior? And I think this is essential to see that this statue is drawing our attention to kingdoms and reigns and those reigns are inferior to one another, not in size, longevity, militarily or morally, but governmentally. In this sense, Babylon was ruled by a single ruler and this one man, Nebuchadnezzar, and his son and his grandson had basically total power in their kingdom to do whatever they wanted. Who they wanted to kill was, was uh, killed. Whoever they wanted to leave alive was left alive. And there was a, central, a centralized uh, power structure in Babylon. But what's interesting is you go to the next kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, um, that kingdom is really shared by those two kingdoms. And so that empire, although it's one, is inferior to the Babylonians because there's these two nations that are making it up and working together, uh, ruling over the earth together. And you'll see later in Daniel that the king didn't have absolute power. He was restricted by the laws of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then, of course, when you get to the Greek kingdom, the Greek kingdom is even more inferior because then it's divided up into four, right? Then you've got four different generals of Alexander who are competing and fighting with each other. And it's important to notice that even though within that one reign of the Greeks, there's a division within it and they can even fight each other and yet this statue is seeing them as one. So, we see that it gets inferior, not in size and longevity and militarily, but in that as it goes on, the rule becomes more and more decentralized until finally we come to the fourth kingdom. That doesn't mean these rules aren't powerful, right? But they're more decentralized in their power structure. And then finally we come to the fourth kingdom, in verse 40, which is here the focus. And the iron, of course, is the most inferior of all these metals, but of course it's the strongest of all the metals, and it conquers all. conquers all these things. And yet we're still dealing with one whole statue because this statue stands for one thing and what began with Nebuchadnezzar is continuing on. Something began with Nebuchadnezzar that's continuing on to this Iron Kingdom. Now who is the Iron Kingdom? There is once again uh, very little disagreement about this. The Iron Kingdom is the one that followed the Greeks which is of course the Romans. And Rome is well described here by iron in that it was by far the strongest of all imperial powers. It was powerful. It lasted the longest. It was militarily strong. And yet, it had the most decentralized form of government in the Roman uh, Republic. And then, of course, even when it became an emperor, there was all sorts of problems for the emperor. He wasn't like the Babylonian king who could do whatever he wanted There was all sorts of checks and balances that he had to face. The emperor was more like a president uh, today, maybe with more power, but it was the most decentralized of all of the kingdoms. And it's important to notice here that uh, this fourth kingdom has two stages, that when we move on to the feet of iron and clay, we're not moving on to a fifth kingdom at all. There's five things to notice on this statue, but we're dealing with one kingdom. If you look at verse 41, after it mentions the powerful legs in verse 40, uh, it says in verse 41, in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it, the fourth kingdom, will be a divided kingdom. But it, the fourth kingdom, will have in it the toughness of iron in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. So it's important to keep in mind here that the that the dream is now showing us that this fourth kingdom that began with the Romans has a second stage to it where the iron is mixed with clay. Its first stage, it is very powerful. Its second stage is very weak. Now, so far there's been basically little controversy among scholars, but when we get to this issue of the feet of the iron and clay, we get into a lot of controversy here. what is this second stage? What does this mean? And uh, there's differences of opinion on this. Two stages in the fourth kingdom. One where there's strength and one where there's weakness. I want you to also notice that Daniel, the, the dream mentions toes twice. Look at verse 41. In that you saw the feet and toes... So like I said, in apocalyptic genre, you're not supposed to press details unless they're mentioned. So if the toes were never mentioned, then it would be wrong for us to say, hey, you know, there are toes on feet, and so we should consider the toes. That would be wrong. We're not supposed to consider the fingers because the fingers aren't mentioned. But the toes are mentioned in verse 41. You saw feet and toes. And look at verse 42. The toes are exclusively mentioned. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so the kingdom will be so the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. So whatever this fourth kingdom division thing is, we have to also think about what are these toes. This is really, really important. Joyce Baldwin says this, we can at least say that the kingdom is vulnerable because it is seeking to unite elements which will not coalesce. What is the uh, clay if the iron represents a strong rule that's decentralized, what is the clay? Some people think the clay is slavery. That's one thing that gets thrown out there. Uh, The Romans used slaves and that was the weakening of their empire. But I think that's really not at all what Daniel is saying because all the kingdoms prior to the Romans had slaves. Some suggest, well, maybe it's types of people who are mingling here. And these types of people at this time are not mixing together well. Possibly types of government, types of government trying to mix together, but they're not mixing well. But I think it's safest to say this, that the iron rule mixes with mankind, it says in verse 43. It explicitly mentions the seed of man, which basically means mankind in general. This iron rule mixes with mankind in general. I believe that the clay signifies men, since we are also made of clay, are we not? And it brings them into the one kingdom, not ruling over them per se, but ruling with them. This iron rule mixes with mankind in general, bringing them into the kingdom and ruling with mankind in general. And I think it's actually quite fascinating that that's precisely what happened with the Roman Empire. If you are familiar with Rome, um, at first, right, the Romans, it was an Italian empire, it, the, the emperors were Italian. The republic was Italian. They were conquering, but it was largely Italian. But most, most of you should know this, that in the latter part of the Roman Empire, it was so big that even though it was still called the Roman Empire, it was really a cosmopolitan empire, wasn't it? It was really... Uh, mm-hmm. m- most of the leaders were not even Italian. The armies were not even Italian. They were hiring out mercenary armies, and there was all sorts of... A mixture of nationalities and peoples, and they were, of course, not just being ruled over by the Italians, they were being brought into the rule of the Romans. They, they were inviting them to be Romans, they were inviting them to rule with the Romans. And so it seems like Daniel's actually touching something that, that appears in history. And there's a lot that can be said about this. I look at verse now 44. Because here, Daniel explicitly tells us that it will be at this time that God establishes his kingdom. And he says this in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it itself will endure forever. At this exact time in history, God will set up his kingdom. He's giving us the marker. And his kingdom, of course, is the stone that strikes the statue and becomes the mountain that fills the whole earth. In the days of these kings, what kings? Joyce Baldwin says this about the kings. The expression is vague in the days of these kings. For no kings have been mentioned since Nebuchadnezzar, but it is natural to assume that the writer intends the kings of the last mentioned kingdom or rule. Would you say that's safe to assume? In the days of these kings, what kings? The kings of this last rule that I have been mentioning. And I think that is true and that is correct because as we go on in Daniel, when we get to the other visions that supplement this one, in Daniel chapter 7, we're introduced, surprisingly, remarkably, to ten kings at the time when the kingdom of God is set up and established. If you're familiar with Daniel chapter 7, a supplementary vision that ends with the establishment of the kingdom of God. It mentions that the kingdom of God will be established when there are ten kings. And we find the exact same thing said in Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 13, Revelation chapter 17. John also talks about ten kings that are set up in place when the kingdom of God is established in the earth. Interesting, isn't it? And how many toes are there on a human foot, two human feet? There are ten. And this is what I believe the toes signify. The toes signify the ten kings and the, the stone strikes the statue at the feet, in the days of those ten kings, which we're going to learn about more later, the God of heaven will establish his kingdom. Now when will that be? There has never been a time where there has been ten kings. Uh, if you look back in history, in the time of the Roman Empire, you can't see there a ten kingdom, or a, a, a kingdom ruled by ten kings there at that time. It does not exist. And so there's never has been a time of ten kings yet. And I believe that Daniel and Revelation and the rest of the thrust of the prophetic scriptures are, telling, are pointing to the future, are pointing to the latter part of the days that is yet to be when God sets up his kingdom. And so we are warranted to look for a time when there will be ten kings ruling this fourth kingdom. Of course, that raises a big question. Well, if this kingdom is Roman, then how can we say that this is future, right? If this, is, if this iron kingdom, this fourth kingdom, is Roman, then isn't that long gone? And of course, this is a huge discussion we can't go into today, but I'd like to point out that many Scholars, in fact, this is the majority position of uh, of a particular one of the biggest branches of Christianity and Christian theology and Christian thought that goes back two thousand years and exists today. Um, Many, many scholars believe that the Roman Empire, the thing that was set up in the ancient world, actually never went away. And if you think that's Christian sensationalism you would be maybe surprised to find out that many many secular scholars also believe that the roman empire actually never went away and that of course raises a big can of worms what is the roman empire exactly right what is this fourth kingdom and how can we say that it hasn't gone away even though it has you know it, there's no romans ruling anymore from rome and uh we can't go into that today. We, we can talk about it after if you'd like. But look into that. That is a view that, that is actually taught at the university here at USU. I was surprised to find out that the historians here at the university actually teach that the Roman Empire never went away, never fell. Decentralized form of government and uh, all sorts of men mixing together without any clear uh, Italian rule. I'll just wet your, your interest But I'd like to, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that, but I'd like to point out five things about the kingdom that will be established, which I believe confirms the view that this is yet future and it's not past. Five things to point out about the kingdom of God, the stone that strikes the statue and that fills the earth. Number one, it is of supernatural origin. It happens without hands. It is not brought about by human instrumentality That's the first thing to, me- to notice about the establishment of the kingdom of God. Would you all agree with that? The kingdom of God is established in the earth by the supernatural act of God and not by any human instrumentality. True? Can we take that away from the text? Secondly, it is established through violent power. The stone smashes the statue and shatters all the kingdoms with one decisive blow. That's what we are to expect when the kingdom of God comes. And this is a view that's confirmed by other scripture, isn't it? When Jesus Christ returns the second time, it tell, the Bible tells us he'll come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God, and he'll, he'll slay the wicked. He will uh, put an end to uh, the kingdoms of man. And you can find this in many places. So to say that the kingdom comes with violent power isn't saying uh, something outside of what other scriptures tell us about the day of the Lord. Third, the kingdom will be a worldwide dominion which will have no rivals. It will have no rivals because there will be no competitors, because there will be no rules that exist. Only the kingdom of God will exist. True? There won't be any rule hiding somewhere in the corner. It will be the kingdom of God on the earth. As it says, the mountain filled the earth just as these other rules reigned over the earth. We have here a, a, um, an earthly phenomenon in view. And fifthly, it will be permanent. This kingdom will never pass to another people, meaning it will always belong to God's people. It won't belong to God's people for a time, and then it will be taken over by someone else. It will be permanent and last forever. Forever. These are five things to notice about the setting up of the kingdom. Daniel gives his summary in verse 45 of the dream. And notice once again the oneness of the statue. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the iron the bronze the clay and the silver. I'd like to now ask this question, what does the statue as a single entity represent? Because we know there's divisions here. But what started with Nebuchadnezzar and that will end with the coming of Jesus the second time? What started with Nebuchadnezzar and what will end when Jesus returns? What does the singleness of the statue represent? And the clue is given in why it starts with Nebuchadnezzar. Because what we know is that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was not the first kingdom in this in this world, right? I mean, the Bible talks a lot about Assyria before it ever talks about Babylon. And Assyrians was a powerful kingdom as well, powerful empire. So we're not to think that this statue represents Gentile empires, because there was empires before Nebuchadnezzar. Yet it starts with Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Anyone have a guess? What's that? God chose. Well, God chose every, every king who's ever been raised, Right? What's the obvious thing? How does Daniel begin? God gave blank into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. God gave what into Nebuchadnezzar's hands? Jerusalem and King Jehoiakim, who is the king reigning in Jerusalem of the line of King David, right? And here is the clue to what the singleness Of this statue represents that these rules are rules over Jerusalem and over uh, and, and in the place of the king of the son of David. See, these aren't the first rulers to rule over Israel, Egypt ruled over Israel. In the time of the judges, there were other nations that ruled over Israel. But get this never since King David. Never since Jerusalem was established by King David, never since God made his covenant with King David and said that you will have a man ruling on the throne in Jerusalem, never since that time was Jerusalem ever ruled over by a, non, a son of David. Never was it ever ruled over by a Gentile rule. And it was with Nebuchadnezzar, this earth-shattering significant event in history, when God allowed a heathen nation to rule over Jerusalem, the city of his name, the city where he promised David would rule forever. This is what the singleness of the statue represents. As long as the son of David is not ruling in the throne in Jerusalem, then this statue exists. And when this, where this statue exists, David and his rule doesn't exist. And where David and his rule exists, this statue doesn't exist. Ezekiel 21, the prophet Ezekiel says to the king, take the crown off his head. It's not gonna, the crown of King David is going to be taken off by Nebuchadnezzar and it won't be put back on anyone's head until the one comes to whom it belongs. Right? Ezekiel 21. There will not be a king, a son of David, until it, the Messiah comes to claim it. And it was taken away at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And so, when the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of David, comes and establishes his kingdom, then this statue, which is rule over Jerusalem, rule in the absence of King David, will be gone forever. Jesus, therefore, is this stone. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 21 verse 44 that he was the stone, that whoever falls on him will be broken. But whoever he falls upon will be ground to powder. And when he comes the second time to reign and to judge the world, he comes for those who have fallen upon him and for those who have put their faith in him. He comes to deliver them. He comes to redeem the children of the kingdom and to make them shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father he taught. But he also comes to crush and destroy those who rebelled against his rule. There are Christians who believe that this dream of Daniel 2 is referring not to Jesus' second coming and his coming to reign as the son of David where he ends all uh, foreign rule over Jerusalem but they believe that this is referring to his first coming. That they believe that the stone that's broken off that strikes the mountain is Christ's first coming when he sets up his kingdom. But I'd like to mention briefly five problems with this the first problem is that that requires a spiritual and not a physical interpretation of the kingdom of god if the stone represents christ's first coming when jesus came into the earth came to the earth as a babe and established his kingdom we really aren't talking about a rule in jerusalem are we we're not talking about the the demolition of all physical earthly rules, we're talking about the setting up of a spiritualized kingdom that exists alongside human rule. And it's a spiritual kingdom, as Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, so therefore he rules, but it's, it's not a physical rule. It's a spiritual rule. And the problem with that is that it, that is not natural to the text. That is not the natural impression the text gives you. Because the text here is focused on the rule on the earth, that these other kingdoms are ruling over all earth and nations. And the the dream was given for Nebuchadnezzar to understand. Nebuchadnezzar would have understood earthly physical rule in the earth, and then a stone comes and displaces those rules and rules. And so the concept of a physical reign is simply foreign to this text. Uh, A spiritual reign is foreign to this text. or I should say an exclusively spiritual reign because certainly Christ's reign is spiritual even when it's physical the second problem with that view that this is the first coming of Christ is that the kingdom of God does not rule alongside other kingdoms but it displaces the others and there is no rival and no competitor And if Jesus' is coming in the the beginning, his first coming is in view here, then what we have is the kingdom of God in the earth alongside the kingdom of Satan, which still exists, doesn't it? And these are competing and fighting, and God's kingdom, you might argue, is, is winning, but that still isn't the feel here and the impression of the text, which is when the kingdom of God comes, there is no trace of other kingdoms. It is not reigning alongside other kingdoms. There are no rivals. Third problem with this, is that the establishment of the kingdom of God in this dream is not a gradual one, but it happens at once. As the the text says, when the stone hits the feet, all at once this statue crumbles to powder and is blown away, without human instrumentality. And some Christians have the impression that the kingdom of God was set up like yeast, in the earth, when Jesus first came, a spiritual kingdom, and it's slowly, little by little, conquering and taking over and gradually, by human instrumentality, taking over the earth. But this is not done by human instrumentality or gradual. This is, as I said, a violent overthrow, which, as Christians, we believe. The Bible tells us that there will be a violent overthrow not saying too much to say that. The Bible also tells us that when Jesus returns, the world, will there even be faith on it? Right? So if, if, if we just take over everything, then why would Jesus say when he returns, will he even find faith on the earth? In verse 4, uh, sorry, not verse 4, my fourth point here, is that this view that this is Jesus' first coming does not account for for the, the stages of the fourth kingdom, is this fourth kingdom has legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. The first stage is when the kingdom is strong, the second stage is when the kingdom is weak. But the first coming of Jesus was when the Roman Empire was at its zenith. It was not divided. It was still ruled by the Italians. It was powerful. It was not showing any signs of weakness whatsoever. And so it would be more appropriate to say if this was the first coming that the stone would strike the statue in the legs, not the feet. The, the, the view that Jesus comes, this is his first coming, doesn't really account for the details of the two stages of the feet, of the clay, and of the ten toes. And then lastly, to say that this is the first coming of Jesus, it does not account for the other details that are given to us in the later supplementary visions which supplement this vision. There's a lot of details that are given there. And none of those details happened in the first century. So in conclusion this morning, here we find Nebuchadnezzar given a dream and an interpretation that's not just for him but for us all that tells us of the future rule of God on the earth and that his kingdom will come and put an end to all the kingdoms of man. And he will reign as the son of David on the throne in Jerusalem. A future rule of God on the earth does not mean that God is not ruling now. That would be a wrong impression. And that would be contrary to the entire theme of the book of Daniel, right? The whole point of Daniel is that God is in control, ruling in the heavens over the affairs of the earth. So I'm not trying to say that because God's not ruling in the earth, he's not ruling. That would be a misunderstanding. But as Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And the ancient hope here of the Jews and the Christians, dear brothers and sisters, is that God's kingdom would come to the earth and displace human corrupt rule and that he would reign and that there would be a time of righteousness and peace on the earth through him. And one day this dream is telling us it will. And that is exciting and should get us excited about that Jesus said the, king, the children of the kingdom which is us right now if you are a believer in Jesus if you have put your faith in him if you have passed into salvation by that supernatural work of God not through your own works but you're trusting in what he has done without hands and you have passed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light You are a child of the kingdom, and when he comes, you will shine brightly in the kingdom of your father, Jesus said. If you you are not a child of the kingdom now, if you don't belong to this kingdom that's coming, if you are not a believer in Christ, or if you are seeking to be saved by your own human efforts and works, then it's going to be bad for you later when Jesus returns, because you are not part of his kingdom. Jesus said unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees you won't inherit the kingdom of God. That righteousness can only be yours through faith in the death of Jesus Christ. Righteousness does not come through the works of human efforts. This is the fundamental prophecy of the book of Daniel. God is in control. The rising and falling of nations will one day come to an end. And God will establish his rule in the earth with no rivals, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, reigning forever and ever. And in that, we should rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have given us hope by taking away our sins and by promising us to return without sin unto salvation. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us all to be filled with peace and hope as we reflect upon these things that, that we would have joy throughout the week knowing that you're in control of all the affairs of men and that we belong to you and have a bright future with you. Thank you that we can rejoice in you always because of these great things. Thank you for your word that is a light in the darkness. Please continue to instruct us and guide us as we look to you. We praise you and give you thanks, our God. In Jesus' name, amen.